Do you have a favorite species to hunt? Oh, I think hybrid because of where they live, because of where they take you. That's, that's the high mountain stuff. And for me, for me, I think now it's all, it's, it's all about the, where it's happening. Like, you know, it's the kind of, I heard it said before, it's not trophy animals, it's trophy ground. Yeah. So where is this awesome terrain that you're hunting and what's the adventure and how can we make more adventure out of it? And Ireland is a small place. So sometimes you have to kind of go out of your way to make adventure. Um, but, um, but we do it nonetheless. And, These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Sig Sauer. SIG is a leading provider and manufacturer of firearms, electro-optics, ammunition, air guns, and suppressors. For over 250 years, SIG Sauer Inc. has evolved and thrived by blending American ingenuity, German engineering, and Swiss precision. Today, SIG Sauer is synonymous with industry-leading quality and innovation, which has made it the brand of choice amongst the U.S. military the global defense community, law enforcement, competitive shooters, hunters, and responsible citizens. Sig Sauer is also a premier provider of elite firearms instruction and tactical training at the Sig Sauer Academy located in New Hampshire. For more information about Sig Sauer and its complete line of products, visit SigSauer.com. What a remarkable time to be alive that something like this is even possible. (laughs) Um, (laughs) so my guest today is Will Amira coming at us all the way from Ireland. How are you? The crack is 90 here, as they'd say, James, I'm very well. (laughs) I don't know what that means. (laughs) (laughs) The crack is 90. It means we're having great fun. Oh, that's awesome. I might try and use that. Might get me, uh, get me arrested here, but we'll, we'll see. How did you, uh, (laughs) How did you get into hunting? When I was a kid, we grew up on a farm and my, both my parents were very into horses and it was my mother's business was producing uh, young horses for hunting um, and eventing. So hunting on horseback was um, basically hunting with hounds, following the hounds on horse and hunting a fox. And I suppose that was my first introduction to hunting, which is far removed from what I do now. But it gave me a sense of adventure. It gave me a sense of uh, the pursuit and the traditions that are associated with it and the hard work that goes into hunting. Um, my dad passed away when we were quite young and I think as a direct consequence of that, my mother um, was very good in that she went to great efforts to give me time with father figures. So friends of hers that she would have known. And for whatever reason, I always had an interest in sending a projectile at an intended target, whether it was throwing stones or firing a catapult or sneaking out with the 2-2 or the shotgun. I was always that way inclined. And she she put me in the right place with the right people um, in a very casual setting and for fun um, to do some, some hunting. And, and those guys who I'm still great friends with and would have been in there, kind of one in particular, Liam Brown, was maybe in his early 20s when I was maybe 10. And... Um, we would have, he would have taken me uh, flighting ducks and another guy would have taken me um, shooting snipe and woodcock. And I think um, I got a crossbow when I was about 12, a little pistol crossbow. I thought I was, um, 
I think uh, American Ninja was big on the scene at the time. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the only adversaries I could find were, uh, was uh, in the hunting domain. Um, uh, so as a kid, I was busy making traps and doing all those things you do when you're a kid. That on reflection, probably isn't the best uh, wildlife management strategy, but it was, um, it was harmless enough, I think. I've got some questions about the, the horseback hunting, because I think that, you know, that, that doesn't, doesn't really exist here. Certainly not for foxes. Uh, we've seen some of that in maybe some historical movies, something along those lines. I have a feeling most folks don't know that that is still a thing that happens when you're, when you're doing that, you've got the hounds or your dogs out pursuing the Fox and then keeping up with them horseback is no easy no easy thing to accomplish. And that's why some of these competitions, some of these events are based around the type of obstacles that you might encounter. What kind of gun is somebody bringing along for something like that? Well, there, there is no gun. There's no gun. There's no gun. No. So it's the, the hound pursuing the fox. And most of the time the fox uh, goes to ground um, or escapes. Um, but it is occasionally caught by the hounds. And when it's caught by the hounds, it's a very quick end. Um, it's, something, it's something that I haven't done in, I don't know, 25 years, probably. It's something I did as a, as a kid and a teenager. and kind of left behind then when motorcycles, uh, rifles and fishing rods and all that kind of hit the scene. I kind of uh, left that behind me. I think because I associated it with just hours of endless toil uh, with horses because it was really a, a hard work industry. And I think when I joined the army that I didn't have the, I suppose, the location or the means to, to pursue it or to continue with it. And, and, and my interest had kind of moved on as well. But to um, I still completely respect it. And it's quite common in England um, although it's been banned there now and it's it's still common in Ireland and you get a lot of parallels between Ireland and England but the difference often between them is the country sports pursuits in England are sometimes seen to be that kind of uh, pastime of um, the entitled or um, the kind of landed gentry um, whereas in Ireland, there seems to be a different approach to it. It's very much a working man's um, mm. pursuit. And, and the same with, with shotgun um, hunting, with upland bird hunting, as you would call it. And that's very much a kind of a local pursuit that is undertaken by, you know, Joe Soaps and just normal people um, who enjoy going out hunting. Now, it's done in a different way. It's... Um, it's less organized, it's less driven hunt, but it is interesting. And I think uh, I was lucky to have those guys who were um, local uh, carpenters and builders and farmers who my mum recognized that she could pair me up with and off we'd go, you know, so. Well, that's, that's wonderful. And I think that there's, there's some elements of that in shotgunning here in the U.S. today, like some of the Bob White quail operations, um, there's there's some places that that try to mimic sort of that Scottish driven pheasant hunt, but most most upland bird hunting is is a, definitely a blue collar endeavor, and it's just guys going out with their dog and hiking around and hoping to find a bird to shoot at, bring home and eat it. Absolutely, yeah. I was only um, hunting pheasant today over my Springer Spaniel. And um, I was out with uh, two, friend, uh, two friends of mine, one of them who had his son with him. And um, we had, I think, five Springer Spaniels. And we spent maybe six hours hunting this morning. And um, I think we had seven pheasants, seven cock pheasants for our, uh, for our work. Lots of ground covered. And the dogs were um, working hard, heavy cover and, you know, putting birds up in good retrieves and some um some reasonable shooting so oh that's uh, good you pheasant in the cold room the shotguns that you guys are using are they mostly doubles or are you using some some pumps and semi-autos uh most common is uh under and over double 
and uh, a semi. Okay. Yeah. So I use a semi. I use a Beretta. Uh, it's an old uh, Ulrika L391. So it's a, an aluminium framed uh, semi. Yeah. Real quick gun. Yeah. Nice gun. Nice and light. Easy to handle. Um, you know, very purposeful. I, uh, I downgraded to it from an under and over when I was trying to put some money together to buy my house whenever that was 10 years ago. Yeah. So it's, uh, it was a, probably a couple of hundred bucks secondhand gun and it's, uh, I still enjoy it and get on well with it. I sold my favorite rifle to be able to buy my uniforms when I went into the Marine Corps. Oh. And, uh, <laughs> there's a privilege you get to buy your uniform yeah yeah yeah, yeah. It, which you know the marine officer's uniform like just the dress blues that's twenty seven hundred dollars it's it's a really expensive thing that you wear you know once a year but it it is what it is and although i i miss that gun i've got uh i've got better ones now so it's okay yeah but um, at least you can um, still parade around in your uniform if the no uh, takes you. Yeah, a, a skinnier version of me could still parade around in that uniform. Um, mm-hmm. I think uh, I might blow the buttons out of it if I tried to squeeze into that thing today. We had a similar setup in that we had to buy our, uh, we called it our, um, our super fines. So they were, uh, that was the same, same dress you're talking about. Yeah. Super fine, our number one uniform. And you had to, uh, it was tailor-made, so you had to go to the tailor, um, a civilian tailor, and he'd make it and fit it to you. And he'd have a roll of the material um, that it was made from. And uh, he would, uh, you would have to pay for it up front in a similar manner, but you would, uh, you would reclaim your uniform allowance um, back at the end of the year, so you'd get the money back, and uh, which was a bit of a... Was a bit of a bonus uh, at the end of the year, but um, yeah. What was your job in the army? So I joined uh, the army as what we call uh, a cadet. So uh, that's uh, basically your officer training. So I joined and uh, I did twenty-one months of officer training in what is our uh, our military academy or our military college, as we call it. And from there, I had been in university before that. I was studying law uh, before I joined the army. And I uh, was working on a building site as well. And I really had a, a strong drive to, to join the military and to pursue that career of a soldier. And that was something I kind of alluded to earlier, that I was always into it. And it was recognized in school even that, that this was something that, you know, the kind of people presumed I would do. And, and I didn't do it immediately um, because my mother saw the merit in having um, a university degree. And um, I discovered then that the army would actually put me through university or finish, allow me to finish my degree. Um, so going to university and being paid seemed like a great idea. So I joined the army, did my training, uh, went back to university, finished my degree. And then I went to... Uh, I was posted to the Cavalry Corps. So it wasn't as, um, as some presume, the horse. Um, we had moved on to the mechanized uh, version. But being Ireland, it was quite small. And uh, we were really uh, a formation reconnaissance um, with some um, limited fire support uh, capacity. And uh, I really went down that route of, um, of the recce of reconnaissance. And that brought me to um, to the UK, where I spent six months with the British Army doing my uh, formation reconnaissance commander's course. And uh, that really gave me a taste then for, you know, the Ricky end of things and all that fun, digging holes in the ground, hiding in there and playing around with Ziploc bags and filling up bottles in the middle of the night with your own uh, fluids and all that goes with that. Yeah, and hopefully not making a mistake about which one is water. <laughs> yeah, yeah, wide nozzle and narrow nozzle. <laughs> I let the rest up to your imagination. But um, but we, um, yeah, so that get, really gave me a taste for that. And 
I suppose the vehicle thing was big for me as well. So that's what pushed me to the cavalry was I was into the soldiering stuff, but I was also into the vehicles. And I had really kind of, as a young fella, I had really, I bought two Land Rovers when I was 16 and rebuilt them. And that was my first car. I bought my first car when I was 12 and kind of for 30, the equivalent of probably $30. And I used to drive that around the farm and thought I was like the Dukes of Hazard. Uh, <laughs> painted it up like that and everything like that. Uh, the flag on the roof and oh, it, was, it was hilarious. But um, but anyway, I really went down that, uh, that route of gathering my tactical and technical expertise. And I did a couple of missions overseas. Um, my first mission was as um, I was actually in in charge of the vehicle maintenance, so maintaining all the armor. Um, so that was uh, that was interesting. So I did like all the driver training, all the off-road recovery, uh, organizing all that. And it was in Kosovo. So it was um, at that stage. Um, but I also then kind of used that because I had lots of time and I was very eager. I took on... Um, a training role as well and we did lots of cross training that I organized with other nationalities and we did some stuff with the um, with the US guys down in uh, Camp Bonsteel at the time and got some range time and you know all that kind of stuff you do that's uh, that's kind of good fun uh, when you can do it when the uh, when the environment is is passive enough to to allow it and um, I suppose from there that journey took me to um, gaining kind of an appreciation of all the hard work that goes into um, the kind of really like what's the most difficult things I can do uh, in the army and, and I always looked at that what can I what's the next difficult thing to do and I think the recce stuff kind of put that into me and uh, I went my next mission was to Chad in Central Africa which was the great adventure and that's, I was uh, the second in command of, uh, of a recce company, a reconnaissance company. And we basically specialized in long range patrol down along the Sudanese border. And we did lots of uh, kind of covert and overt um, OPs, checkpoints, uh, patrolling. And it was the great adventure. No roads, no tarmac adam, uh, very little vehicles, and I got to see what the wilderness of Africa was all about. And those Wilbur Smith books that I had read as a kid kind of started coming into reality. And it was um, it was a great adventure. And my company commander on that adventure, a guy called Mick O'Brien, was um, had just finished up in the Army Ranger Wing, which is our special operations unit, um, which was established in the early 1980s as a counterterrorism and um, capacity and he we get on like a house on fire on that trip and we we were very similar in our uh, approach and demeanor and he said to me he said have you thought about doing the uh, special forces selection course and I said mm, uh, not really um, I said you know I'm interested <laughs> in it but I but I haven't given it you know I was probably too busy pursuing my career as a professional off-road motorcycle enduro and motocross racer at that time. That's where my focus was. And he said, you need to think about doing this. And he said, you're made for it. And that little bit of encouragement was something that wasn't very common, you know, that people weren't really, the only talk you'd hear of selection was, horror stories and oh you need to be this to do that and you know um it, it always seemed like that kind of uh, really shrouded in mystery but there was um i suppose that was the only encouragement i needed and uh that became my new mission and uh so that was kind of i suppose i went and did that on my return from overseas and um yeah that's a whole other story hmm. that's uh that's pretty amazing did you work with tanks at all? Uh, so we had the uh, the Scorpion, which is a light tank. It's okay. uh, an aluminium hulled tank, if you can see the wisdom in that. 
But when I went back to the UK in 2009 and I did um, what's called uh, the Combined Arms Tactics course, which teaches company commanders as majors how to, which I know you do it slightly differently, um, but for us, a company commander was a major. And it teaches you how to tactically deploy in a battle force or in a battle group environment. And uh, we that's the only time I got to um, stand in the turret of a Challenger 2 tank and uh, give the direction to advance. Northern Niner 3, report in position. <laughs> and, it's a good uh, feeling. Yeah, oh man, man, 70 tons of rolling awesomeness, shock and awe. Holy shit. That's like <laughs> just, yeah, I think, um, yeah, that was, um, it's pretty cool. But uh, no, I think I was actually happier sneaking around, you know, doing the little, uh, in the little tanks, sneaking around and then jumping out and running around when you needed to uh, trade speed for stealth. And uh, my, my path was much the same. And the armor training for the Marines um, is, is combined with the army. So we got to, to learn how to use all of the, the army's vehicles as well. And half of that school was a reconnaissance school, scout reconnaissance. And um, there was an armor reconnaissance course afterwards it was some of the most tr- fun training that I ever did. Probably the very most fun training I ever did was the, the recon element of that, of that army armor school. And then by the time I got back uh, to, to the fleet Marine forces, it was just tanks, but having, having that knowledge and training of the, the recon aspect of things was tremendously helpful. And coming from a hunting background, I was much better suited for recon than I was for uh for actual armor you know here on the on the ranch and in this rural area we use vehicles sure but you know mostly you're you're kind of on foot figuring it out and that's what recon is is largely about so yeah yeah, it was uh it it was a, a wonderful time for me and it's it's fun to hear the similarities between your your path and mine although um you were in ended up getting deployed to different areas when you were in Chad, was that a UN mission? It was a EU four, so which was a, a European force. Okay. Um, which was that was excellent because it had a lot of funding, and our ROEs were very were much um, more robust and suited to the uh, to the mission. It it later became a UN mission. But when I was there, it was a European force mission. And my mission to Kosovo was a NATO mission. And then my next mission was to Afghanistan, um, where I was actually worked with, my boss was um, a US Army guy. And um, we were just six paddies in the middle of, uh, in the middle of Afghanistan, surrounded by uh, US guys. And it was a multinational environment, but. Um, and then my last mission was to uh, Lebanon. So it was, uh, yeah, lots of variety. But that's, you asked me, what did I do in the army? I did everything. Yeah, quite a bit. Yeah, everything. And the beauty about being an officer in the Irish army was there was very much a focus on leading from the front and being the example. You can't be an officer in a recce unit without having done your recce course and your recce commander's course. And you're expected to do those courses to excel in them, to perform in your appointment, and to lead from the front. You can't just struggle through it. And one of the things I really enjoyed when I was in the cavalry was I instructed um, and eventually ended up as the chief instructor in our cavalry school. And reconnaissance was a major part of that. And for me, I love nothing better than going out, like all that navigation, you know, getting around at night and getting into position, all the observation, you know, it's great fun. And coupled with that, I love fixing stuff and I love solving problems. And that's like all the, all the vehicle stuff is like solving problems. It's navigation, it's get recovery, 
it's fixing, it's like making it happen. And I think all those skills that I had as a kid, um, that they were kind of, it was kind of a necessity, you know, it was like, you know, you just have to figure it out. Like, um, and my mom was very good. Like I recognize now she, she always threw us in at the deep end and she said, listen, I need you to do this. And you'd be like, oh, I haven't done that before. And she goes, I tell you what, I get, there'll be someone here. She'd come back and she'd go, someone here at nine o'clock in the morning for 20 minutes or at eight o'clock in the morning for 20 minutes on their way to work. And they'll show you how to start that. And there you go, nine years of age and you'd be changing the tines on a hay bob or you'd be pointing a stone wall or you'd be um, whatever it is, fencing or fixing a tractor or, you know, it was, uh, yeah. And I think, I think I just kept doing that, fixing stuff and solving problems. It's a wonderful thing and, and a wonderful problem that as a young officer, because leadership in the Marine Corps is, is much the same as what you're talking about. But as a young officer, you've had all the formal training that, that they can possibly give you. And then you have no actual real world experience. And then you get to, to the fleet or, or whatever it is when you're actually doing the job with, with your Marines or with your soldiers, with your troops they all have more experience than you, but they're also looking to you for, for leadership and you need to lead from the front. So the guys that can figure out, okay, now is my time to be humble and, and ask everybody for, for their perspective and their opinion and their advice. And then you take all that and you add to it what you know, and then you say, all right, boys, thanks for what you said. Here's the plan. Follow me. Here we go. And yeah. you end up doing things that you have no idea how to do. And you figure it out. You, you go along the way and you make all the adjustments that are required to accomplish the mission. And that, that's a wonderful thing. It's gotten me in trouble a little bit as a civilian afterwards, because I have no fear about taking something on that I have no idea how to do. And sometimes in the civilian world, if you say, yeah, I'll do that, there's an expectation that, that you know what you're doing. I don't, yeah. um, but I do know that I can figure it out because I've done something that's significantly harder before, even if it's yeah. different. I completely agree. And my outlook on life is if someone can do it, I can do it. Now, I also have learned to appreciate the value of an expert. So in absence of an expert, I heavily rely on the font of all knowledge, which is YouTube, uh, <laughs> to help me solve those problems that I yeah. don't know how to do. But I think the past year has been a case in point. And I mentioned earlier that I spent a little bit of time uh, working on building sites and in construction um, before I joined the army. And I took on a rebuild of our house uh, on the 1st of March last year, which is the first day after our hunting season. So I say that on the 1st of March, I put down the rifle and picked up the Kango hammer or the Jack hammer. And, um, Basically, that was another journey in like, you know, and people look at you and they go, but how do you know how to do all this stuff? And you're like, going, um, I don't like, but it's not rocket science or, you know, just figure it out. Like, you know, what, what's the worst that can happen? Even if it was um, rocket science, there's books, there's videos, there's experts. <laughs> like, I think I could figure that out, too, with enough time. You know, there's there's mm. people that can support you in figuring this stuff out. Like, you don't have to be intimidated about it. But yeah, consulting experts, very good decision. Like if you can find an expert, find them, ask them because yeah. they're passionate. The only way that anybody becomes an expert in anything is by being passionate about that subject. And people yeah. who are passionate tend to want to share that passion. So they're not going to just like hold on to that knowledge. There's some people that are like that, but most people are willing to help. Yeah. And leverage that, like leverage it, ask them for their, you know, Get that good knowledge that you need in order to do it yourself. You know, if that's what you have to do, if you're in a position where you have to do it yourself, then, you know, get all the advice and help you can and yeah. get someone to help you. Grant, if you haven't, the, if it makes more financial sense to you because you make twice what they make and, you know, then that's a different story. Like, you know, but, you know, I seem to, I think for me, it's a self-sufficiency thing. Like I like taking responsibility for stuff and um, for my own stuff and, and getting it done. And, and you, you mentioned the, the planning earlier and, you know, you get all the input and that's, that's something that really, I don't know. I think in our formal training early on, it was kind of, 
the orders process was you get your mission and your commanders or your higher commander's intent and you go away and you, you make up your plan and you kind of deliver this magic show um, and that's the plan. Whereas when I got to special operations and started my um, soft training, you learned the, uh, a different model of, of, um, of planning. And basically it's everyone has an input and you really war game stuff and bounce stuff off each other. And there's no, there's no idea is too crazy or too loopy because you're trying to be unconventional, not for the sake of it, but for the effectiveness of it. And we were really given great freedom and scope um, to explore that, um, that unconventional uh, approach. And when everyone has, has, has really, you know, put in ideas and put in inputs and kind of, you kind of, come, and because you operate in small teams, you kind of come to the natural conclusion. And there's times where as the leader, you have to go, listen, for X, Y, and Z reason, this is what we're going to do. Um, and it doesn't have to be a democracy, but it's, um, it's super effective. I talked with, uh, with General Conway about this. He was the Commandant of the Marine Corps when I came in and he retired uh, while I was on active duty. And I had the pleasure to, to hunt and fish with him a few times after both of us were, were out of service. And he described military leadership as knowing, knowing when to be autocratic versus democratic. And, and that's kind of what you're talking about where you accept and, and solicit advice and opinions from everybody. And once you've had all that, then it becomes autocratic and all, all the votes have been cast, but you know, the, the buck stops with me and I'm going to make the decision and we're going to do it. doesn't mean I'm not going to change that decision if the situation changes because I am, yep. but it, it's a very, very difficult thing, but it, it tends, tends to have a good result, it tends to have a good result when it's all over with. Yeah. And, and what you're talking about there, flexibility and the confidence to allow others to change your mind i love it like i love nothing more than someone coming to me and going you know this thing you said i think there's a better way of doing it and you're like i'm all ears let's 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 chat that out let's work that out and that's fantastic like because number one that person feels like they can approach you number two you're open-minded and it's like let's you know what's the objective here the objective here is to achieve the mission not to be right or to have champions the plan or to be mr good idea it's like it's all about getting the job done and i think people respect that more than you know just being right at the first instance stay flexible and and it's the same with, it's the same with hunting yeah and when yeah, i'm guiding very much I'm so. sure you, and i'm sure you get this when you're guiding i'd have um a client or a hunter ask me um oh, what's the plan and I'm going, well, we're going to stalk up here. You know, we, we spotted the animals. I kind of generally, it's, a lot of it's very open mountain. So you kind of have to feel your way in on the stalk. But anyway, I'll say, look, we're going to stalk up here and see what happens. And they're like, kind of looking at you, slightly in disbelief and kind of going, is that your plan? Like, and I'm like, yeah, well, you know, sure, anything can happen. And, and if they ever ask me, you know, um, do the stags ever run around in circles three times and start barking? And you might say, no, as sure as the hell, <laughs> the stag will run around three times and start barking. <laughs> you know? so, so, so those like, and I think what I'm trying to say here is there's always stuff you've seen for the first time. There's always something new. And then I think with that, you also build up the experience to know, to be able to read a situation and you can tell them what's going to happen. So you get into a position, you say, that stag is going to walk, he's walking towards us. There's another stag between us and him. He's going to stop. They're going to face each other. Then or he's going to stop. That other younger stag is going to stand up. They're going to face each other. He'll be broadside and then you can shoot. So don't shoot him when he's walking. And sure enough, that unfolds and they're like, how do you know that? And you're like going, I don't really know. 
It's my brain. I take no credit for it. <laughs> because I've played this game before and yeah, yeah. there is an element of predictability and, and patterns if you can if you can see enough of the situation. Um, yeah. I I've done this with with fishing a bunch of times where somebody will finally make like the cast that I was trying to make, get them to make. And, and I know this water intimately. Um, I could draw you a, a map of the rocks on the bottom of the river. Mm. And I've got a pretty good idea where a fish is going to be and what type of a cast is required to get that fish to eat. And when they make a good cast, there's been a couple of times when I've been able to count them down. I'll be like, you ready? It's going to happen in three two, one, boom, fish hits, but there's a, there's an element of predictability in there. And a lot of guides have, have played that trick before. And of yeah. course a client thinks that you're an absolute sorcerer when something like that happens Yeah, yeah. and it feels good for everybody, but yeah, it, that is fun. What, what aspects of your training in, uh, in, in sort of the big Irish military and then soft afterwards, do you feel like informed uh, the way that you hunt today. So I think that the um, I think the land navigation part was is is very useful. I think that the the general exposure to humping around the mountains with a heavy pack and um, builds that resilience and kind of knowledge that you just keep plodding along and you get to wherever you're going. Um, I think that the all the seer skills. Uh, give you confidence to operate in any environment anywhere in the world um, and know that look at the very worst you can get to somewhere um, if you need help. I think from a guiding perspective, the uh, medical training gives you um, something very useful that hopefully you never need to use uh, in your back pocket. Um, I think that um, the so just before I joined the um, joint SOF, so I had done, when you're an officer, after my selection course, I had passed my selection course and I knew I had done well, um, but as an officer, you, you're not taken in immediately. So the other ranks go in like the next day uh, and you have to sit and wait because there's only so many positions for an officer. So what I did was, I decided to use that time to add more strings to my bow and get, I suppose, to get on courses that I hadn't um, been on and I wanted to do. Um, and one of those was a sniper course. So I did my basic sniper course. And that led to when I, so maybe nine months later, I was um, brought in to the unit and I commenced my special operations operator training so you're um so you're basically your your soft q we use calls your uh, special operations force qualification course and we um after that i went and i did more sniper training my special operations sniper course and spent some time in the states with uh doing training and competitions um, and then we did some multinational courses in ireland where we had lots of French, Canadian, US guys come over. So, so all that volume of sniping experience and because I was into it, I was into shooting and I was into the, the technicalities of it and the practicality of it and the, the application of it. Um, and I think part of that was because I really loved hunting. So I really wanted a lot of these tools to apply in the operational environment, but also knowing that this will pay dividends in my pastime as well. And, and I think it has. So I think all of that, I think like everything really, it's, it really all adds up to being very like problem solving, shooting, moving, shoot, move, medicate, communicate. Like it's all there. Yeah. The, the species that you primarily hunt for now, you talked about hunting for birds a little bit. And the stag hunting, is that uh, red stag or Sika stag? So in Ireland, we have three species. Well, three and a half, I suppose. Uh, we have. <laughs> I feel like there's a joke in there somewhere. <laughs> um, so we have fallow, fallow okay. deer. They are the most widely distributed 
species uh, in Ireland. Uh, they were introduced by the Normans back whenever that happened, uh, a thousand years ago, maybe. Then we have uh, red deer, which have been here um, since the ice. Um, it said some conflicting evidence has recently arisen about that, but but they've been here for a long time. And then we have the Sika deer who were introduced in the late 1800s. And I hunt all three. So in the past month, I've hunted all three. What's the half species? The half species are Sika red hybrids. Really? Which are red, yeah. So red deer in County Wicklow occupies the open mountain terrain, uh, much like the Scottish Highland Reds. And, and they probably looked very like the Scottish Highland Reds. And with the introduction of Sika in um, the late 1800s, the, they were in a park environment. And then as time went on, I think during World War I, the perimeter of the estate fell into disrepair and um, the Sika got out. And the Sika are a very aggressive uh, deer. Uh, and the male stags, will fight off a red stag and, and you might go, but the size difference. A good Sika stag uh, is probably an equal weight and probably muscularly more dense than a Highland red stag. So the red stags are big, empty, hollow carcasses, like they're big frames, but there's they actually don't weigh that heavy. Um, and the Sika started covering the red hinds. And what has resulted is in County Wicklow, we have a huge population of Sika. And on, on those high ground, high open mountain, we have uh, a population of hybrid deer. The reds, there are no pure reds left. And a hind is a, is a female stag, right? Uh, a female stag? It's an or, interesting concept. Sorry, not a female stag. A female red deer. So we would say doe, yeah. or if it was an elk, we would say cow. Just uh, you sure. know, we we don't have sure. have those those names and species here. So I'm just trying to clear it up. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, cool. So what we have is uh, in Ireland we call for reds, they're stags and hinds. For sika, they're stags and hinds, and for fallow, they're bucks and does. Okay. Um, so it's similar-ish to your elk yep. um, versus your whitetail, I think. Yep. Yeah. But um, having said that, I think I've shot a female stag. So okay. a, deer that, that, a deer that had all of the uh, characteristics of a female, but had, in fact, some uh, male genitalia. Um, we shot a, a whitetail here uh, a couple years ago and it had one antler that was still in velvet when it should have been hard horned um, mm. it had female parts it had an udder with milk but it also had testicles oh well it had a lot going on i'm kind of glad really that we shot stag. it yeah 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 female stag um, very modern and where i live is um is very predominantly seeker and hybrids um and you get you get with hybrids you get everything in between. So you get the ones that look very red like, and you get the ones that look very sika like. But there'll be a trait in the antler, or a metatarsal gland, or the tail that is out of character for that species. And hmm. um, so yeah, so we have a very very healthy population of deer in Ireland. Do you have a favorite species to hunt? Oh, I think hybrid because of where they live, because of where they take you. That's, that's the high mountain stuff. And for me, for me, I think now it's all, it's, it's all about the, where it's happening. Like, you know, it's the kind of, I heard it said before, it's not trophy animals, it's trophy ground. Yeah. So where is this awesome terrain that you're hunting and what's the adventure and how can we make more adventure out of it? And Ireland is a small place. So sometimes you have to kind of go out of your way to make adventure. Um, but, um, but we do it nonetheless. And, and, and much the same, like um, last week I was in uh, County Kerry hunting woodcock. 
And again, it's high mountain stuff. And it's hunting with the shotgun for woodcock. It's exciting. It's high mountain. It's adventure. Yeah. It's um, yeah, much like the hybrids. I think woodcock and hybrids would be would be the two. But um, do you have a favorite to eat? Um, yeah, probably the same. The hybrid, probably the same. Yeah, yeah. But I think with I think any venison we at home here we eat. I'm going to say about eighty percent of our meat is wild meat, and um, I suppose we're lucky enough that. We can we can hunt we can hunt regularly enough and um, we have a long season and I have lots of uh, access to ground so um, that's a, a great bonus to that is that wild meat you know and we really value it it's it's fantastic. When is the season? So the season for deer opens on the first of September and runs till the twenty eighth of February. Uh, the season for bird hunting by and large, runs from the 1st of November to the last day of January. And there are some exceptions to that. Ducks start earlier. Ducks start on the 1st of September. Uh, we can hunt grouse for the first, for the month of September. And then the season for deer divides up. The first two months are stags only. The middle two months are stags and females. And the last two months are uh, females only. Okay. If someone wanted to come and hunt in Ireland, come from the States or, or from anywhere else for that matter, how would they even get started? Do they need to hunt with an outfitter? Is there public land that they can hunt on? How, how does it work for non-residents? Yeah, there is no public hunting land. Um, all of the, if you were coming as a visitor to Ireland, my recommendation would be to come to a reputable outfitter um, because it's not expensive. Um, and you will be safe in the knowledge that you're going to get good hunting, you know, because it's quite a journey to make. And I think um, I do some guiding for an outfitter and he has been doing it for 30 years. And he said, guys from all over the world come. And I think in all that time, he said one, one person who was uh, unsuccessful and I don't think it was the fault of the outfitter. <laughs> okay. Yeah. This, this is a, this is a non-hunting question, but this is part of a debate that's been going on for many years. And I need you to help me solve it. When I was coming back from Afghanistan, uh, we stopped in Shannon for about five hours. Hmm. And that was the first time that we were able to, to drink, right? So the whole company of Marines gets off the airplane, head into the airport, and we start drinking. Now, the debate is if you are in the airport of the country, um, then you can't really claim to have been in that country. However, I feel like since I've drank Guinness and it's not an import, that maybe that's a workaround. So have I been to Ireland or have I not been to Ireland? Oh yeah. When you look at the map, where's the airport? I don't know. looks like Ireland to me. That's what I'd say. Okay. Thank you. That's my, that I feel like I just won this debate and I cannot wait to talk to uh, a couple of these Marines about it. <laughs> yeah. Like there isn't much else in Shannon, only an airport. Actually, <laughs> actually the town of Shannon and this is quite unusual in Ireland because most towns in our, I'm going to say nearly 99% of the towns in Ireland have been there since, I don't know, like for, as, for hundreds and hundreds, if, you know, if not thousands of years, no, well, not thousands, but definitely hundreds and hundreds of years. Shannon was built around the airport. Oh, really? So the, there would be no Shannon town huh. only for the airport. So I think you could add that to your argument. Okay. Where, uh, where in Ireland do you live? I live in County Wicklow, which is on the uh, eastern side and um, just south of Dublin. And it's a mountainous area, um, which is called the Garden of Ireland because of its, I think it's natural beauty. Um, What's your weather like? There's three types of weather in Ireland. It's either <laughs> raining. It's just stopped raining or it's just about to start raining 
So rain gear is pretty important to you. Rain gear is pretty important. Yeah. But if you don't have any, remember skin is waterproof. That's a good point. And Marines are amphibious yeah. by nature. Yeah. So um, it's not where I grew up. I grew up in the Southwest in, um, in North Cork, which is more a better place from an agricultural point of view. But Wicklow is the home of deer. And I suppose it's, um, it's no surprise that I ended up here. Hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a good reason to go to a place and stay there, I feel like. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, and and when, when we were deciding where would we live, myself and my wife, um, she was in the military as well. And we were both based about 35 minutes from where we now live. And we decided that we could, we enjoyed the mountains so much, like if it wasn't mountain running or mountain biking or orienteering or um adventure races or hunting or whatever it was we were in the mountains so we decided well you have a choice you can live in like beside where you work or in a town or whatever and you can travel to your uh, fun or you can live where your fun is and travel to town when you need to go there and i think we made the right call and um, i don't i couldn't live in a town anyway i don't think i'm cut out for it I like crawling around in my boxer shorts too much. <laughs> With or without shotgun. I think I think you made the right decision. Yeah. Well, cool. What are some uh do you have any any travel plans this year? I know it's 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 hard to make plans, but are you gonna be hunting outside of Ireland at all this year? Um I was in Greenland with uh, Mr. G, who I know you're uh you're friendly with uh, with Rob and the Spartan crew back in September. Okay. And what I'm going to do for the rest of this year is make the most of what we have here on our doorstep. Because I think sometimes when you, and that trip actually taught me that because we were gone for two weeks and I kind of, two weeks before it, you're building up to go two weeks after it, you're kind of, you're making up for lost ground and lost time and playing catch up. So it's six weeks really gone, which is, you know, it's it's a month and a half of the season, which is, you know, it's a fair slice of it. So I think I need to focus more on enjoying stuff at home because it's the time for doing that. And I think I'm going to focus my attention more on family adventures than solo hunting missions abroad in the immediate future. Now, having said that, I do want to go to North America and hunt some public land um, for some high country adventure, whether it's uh, black bear or mule deer, uh, something along that lines, you know? Well, when you're ready, you let me know. Oh, I'm ready. Okay. <laughs> Forget all that stuff I said. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. the spirit. No, yeah. I, I, I feel like mule deer would be your, would be your thing. Um, black bear hunting in the springtime is a wonderful thing. And mm-hmm. you know, the, we hunt in these big river canyons and they're, they're, they're inverted mountains. Okay. They're incredibly steep. You might have to hike for five or six hours to get from the river up to the rim. And, and that's where these bears are living. And you've kind of mm-hmm. got to go until you can find like the green grass line. And that'll be, maybe a thousand vertical feet 300 meters below um below the snow line and these bears are moving in and out of the brush and it's a lot of glassing it's a lot of hiking it's april may time frame so we've just started to shake winter off and now it's getting warm and Mm. you can start hiking in a t-shirt again a little bit it's uh it's just a wonderful time of year but but the mule deer thing is special of course it's a, it's a deer and you've got the antler aspect of it deer are a lot better to eat than bears like not even not even close so that's fun since uh since you've got the meat aspect of it and then if you've if you kill a big bear they're they're just a pain man they're such an awful animal to move around they're mm. they're the worst they're flexible in every direction they're really greasy they're covered in ticks and it's just it's just a lot to deal with if you kill if you kill a sure enough big bear and uh, 
And of course, you're not going to not shoot a big bear if that's what comes out. So you might have some real trouble on your hands, yeah. but both yeah. of them would be good options. Spring bear tags, you can get over the counter in most states that have them like uh, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming. Um, you could get those. You can just buy them. So you don't have to apply. It's not a big planning portion of it. Cool. Yeah. And it, um, that time of year is good. I remember I've been to New Zealand a couple of times hunting and we always went in April, May, and it's a good time to go because the season's over here and um, you've kind of had enough time to recover after the season here because right. I, I think by the, time, by the time the end of February comes, I'm I'm ready to like do something else. I've just like, I always kind of go hell for leather at the, you know, for the last month of it and, and kind of squeeze in as much, almost sicken yourself with hunting, you know, and yeah. such a yeah. thing as possible. It, but, it um, gets to be a lot, you know, it gets to be a lot and you get tired, a different kind of tired, but it doesn't take very long to forget either. And then pretty soon yeah. you're just jonesing to get back after it again. Yeah. And I find, uh, I find during the hunting season, I lose a lot of strength, you know, cause it's very endurance based and you're just, it's just a lot of slogging and carrying and, you know, just, you know, cold and wet. And I think all that just eats calories and it eats body mass and then this the summer is a time to kind of get strong and you know get all your mobility back and you know you're not up at the crack of dawn out before you know up ungodly hour out you know to get out and be in the right place at the right time or you're not traveling you know for multi-day hunts and you're not you know out butchering and um processing meat all night and it just seems like a like a lovely time of year that you can um, kind of focus on wellness and um you know and get strong again to to hit it hard in september and you know hunt hard for another six months <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i'm sure you use a bunch of fairly specialized equipment given just the uniqueness of your terrain and your vegetation and weather um i know you know, you, you mentioned Rob, but I know that Spartan tripods are, are part of your system. Is there anything else that you feel like is, is real specialized to, to what you are doing? Um, to be honest, the, the way, the way I hunt and the way we kind of my close friends are my close friends in the hunting world because of how and where we hunt. And I'm, I'm, I think it's, it's not unique, but it's not that common, you know, that there's far easier ways of going out and getting a deer. And I think that that's probably the norm, you know. Um, I have little or no interest in shooting a deer in a farmer's field or um, sitting in a high seat in forestry. And I've done it, and it's very effective if you need to manage the numbers on that, you know, in that area. And guys get a good kick out of that and that's you know each to their own um but for me it's the um the backpack good backpack um for packing animals is super important because the volume of deer that we're handling on an annual basis is huge um good boots uh gore-tex boots i wear a little gore-tex putty um which is like a mini gator that i I had a friend of mine make up a dozen sets of and then a good set of gaiters and um, yeah other than that it's a good good rain gear and uh, you need just to it's a very damp climate because it's so humid it's you know even when it's dry you're wet because the mountain is wet and it's that soft wet soggy ground um, and that's why it's everything is so green so you if you're not wearing a like a waterproof jacket on a sunny day on the mountain and you start crawling, then you're going to get wet. So you, you also need to be keep breathable. But yeah, I think um, I think the most important items in my kit are the um, good set of gloves, good boots, backpack, and your uh, your waterproof layer. But um, but it evolves, you know, it evolves. I don't think there's anything super specialized. To be honest, nothing, nothing a Western mountain hunter wouldn't be familiar with, um, you know, 
What is very popular here, and we use a lot, especially guiding that, that is quite specialized and not very common in on your side of the pond, is uh, quad sticks. Yeah. So quad sticks are like such an incredible tool. And when I met Rob first, we danced around my kitchen with his tripod, <laughs> uh, trying to make it into um, a set of quad sticks. And we did make it into a set of quad sticks. And it is now a quad and pent system that is aimed at, and we have sold to um, the special operations sniper niche. And it is super effective um, because it's, um, you, it's a system that will allow you to observe and to fire from and you can it's hands-free it's stable um, in a four-leg format it is mobile and it's adjustable you know so it's it's all those things that you need and the stability over a tripod is phenomenal well it's two points of contact i mean it, it's not even comparable yeah yeah now i have done some training with guys non-military guys um and you would think that when i introduce this system that i love and use all the time that, and i think is the best thing since sliced bread you would think in their hands it was the most useless piece of kit ever invented mm. because it needs a degree of practice and training to be yeah. useful you know but yeah I think um, yeah, I think it's probably very similar to Western Western mountain hunting. Well, so. you'll have to report back on that once you come over here and and give Western hunting a try. We'll we'll have to do an exchange, James. Maybe I think is the best idea. Okay, that sounds you know, good we, to me. We can, we can compare notes, and you can put your uh, Shannon uh, mystery finally <laughs> dead. step outside the the doors of uh, the arrivals terminal. Okay. Yeah. All right. That sounds good. Well, sir, I, I thank you very much for your time. We're going to link to your, uh, to your Instagram here in the podcast description, but that's a uh, Willow Mira hunting, right? That's right, James. Yeah. Okay. Is there any, any other place that people need to be following along in the action of what you're doing or, or is there a better way for somebody to, to book you if they want to come and do a deer hunt in Ireland? It's about all I can do to put up an occasional photograph on Instagram. So I think we'll keep it to that medium and they can, okay. they can message me on that. Okay. If we, uh, if they would like to come for an adventure in okay. Ireland and we'd be delighted to look after them. And, um, I feel like we need another hour, uh, to, uh, fully explore your, for me to ask you lots of questions because it seems like we have a lot in common. Well, oh, I'm, yeah. I'm here for you anytime. And this isn't going to be the last time you're on the show. So next time we'll get into more of that. Happy days. We have lots of rabbit holes to go down and deep dive. Yes, sir. Happy days. Thanks, James. Thanks again. So I found this old ad and there's like dudes dressed up like construction workers and a guy's got a jackhammer and there's a crane and, you know, they're moving all these big steel beams and stuff. Aladdin Stanley Thermos. Stanley, the tough, all-steel thermos bottle that's completely dependable. They're showing this thermos, like, falling off this building and hitting all this other construction stuff. And built to take a bounding year after year. <laughs> Get the tough one. Oh, Lance and Wheelbarrow. The guy grabs it out of Wheelbarrow. Now he's going to pour himself a cup of coffee. thermos bottle. I love these cheesy old ads and most of the time, like they're lying to us, right? That's most of what marketing used to be was just like telling a lie or, or at least telling a version of a lie that, that made you think that you needed this thing. But I'll tell you what, when it's cold out, like it is right now, the only way to keep liquid liquid and not freezing in your pack is by putting it in something that's insulated. So packing a thermos in the wintertime is really smart, whether it's for a hot beverage like coffee or, if you just want to bring some water with you, which is a really important thing if you're going to be out adventuring around in this uh, in this snow that we've got all over the country. And I think you should be because it's a great time of year to get out and about. You know, this is both a comfort and a safety thing. If you want to get something from Stanley, which I encourage you to do, 
You can use the discount code 6RANCH, that's the number 6 in the word RANCH, and that'll get you 25% off of just about anything on their website. I encourage you to do that. They're great supporters of the show and uh, great supporters of this audience, and I love you guys. So stay warm out there, have a nice warm drink, and uh, make sure you're drinking it out of a Stanley product. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. For more content and photos, follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch Podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.